but I don't think that's that's more of a thing on me. That's more of how I operate. It's a satellite map. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's from a bird's eye view, guys. Literally, a bird wrote it, so I wouldn't know the city names. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Tyler, and today you'll be joining me in a discussion on cartography, where we'll cover how to shape your world's geology and geography to fit the page. Today joining me is Adam, Immokinate, and Rag, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourselves. My name's Adam. I am Vice Editor-in-Chief at Worldbuilding Magazine, and uh, just kind of do a whole bunch of stuff here and uh, i actually do a little bit of art commissions on the side with a large portion of that being map commissions so i'm super excited to be here to talk about maps and making them today hello everyone i'm a machinate or in our nativity the editorial chair here at uh, world building magazine i'm an avid video gamer tabletop gamer and world builder when i'm not doing podcasts and editing for world, for the magazine I'm a I do commissions on editing and writing and uh, I also uh, am an editor at Paizo. I'm absolutely glad to be here. Still so jealous you got that position. Uh, congratulations because <laughs> I haven't said it yet. Thank you. With that, I am Rag. I am a freelance writer, a former gaming journalist and have nothing to do with Roblox magazine whatsoever other than this podcast. Who is this guy? He has nothing <laughs> to do with the magazine. <laughs> I'm here for bias points only. I have nepotism on my side. No, the the podcast is a big part of what we do now. So you don't you don't have to be a part of the magazine. Honestly, we're glad you're here. Oh well, I barely show up on the podcast anyway. I think I've had I've been in like six. Take the fucking compliment. Oh, it's, I'm not. I'm just being realistic. Six not, is a lot. For, six is a decent number. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. A quarter of our episodes, at least. All right. So uh, thank you all for joining me today. And as we discuss the lifelong passion of mine, which is mapping and cartography. Um, I guess kind of to start us off, I would just like to say that maps are one of the easiest ways to share information. It shows a region, an area, continent, what have you, and will tell you something about it. A good map has information that's not too dense. It has a clean look to it. And it is enjoyable to view and read, but it also gives you something. Um, These are pretty simple premises, and it can be surprisingly difficult to not get lost in trying to make your map more. Uh, So to begin with, let's, I guess, just go over what you guys see as being good map making. So uh, just to preface it, and I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, unlike Adam and Dino, I am not a map maker or map lover. Uh, however, with all that Dino just said, I absolutely agree that even though I am not those things, I still try to make maps for the sake of their general usefulness. And kind of as part of that, I find that maps that can give, uh, for, in my cases, I use them for directions. Uh, I use them for scale. I don't do detailed maps, but just enough that I can tell whoever's looking at it, oh, this is going to take you so long, so-and-so t- so and so days or so-and-so uh, distance to get to where you need to be. Um, 
However, I'm also a fan of uh, not necessarily geographical maps, but political ones. Uh, maps that show me who is where, um, where are they, where are they uh, prominent, where are they active. Um, very, I guess that would essentially be what we tend to think of as like maps that have uh, countries demarcated. But in, in truth, I mean, the world doesn't come with natural borders like that. So that's something that we, we uh, as a society kind of put as a, based on how things, uh, based on geopolitical situations, of course. I've always been far more fascinated with demographic maps like that, because they do show more of the truth than like uh, the borders of a country, as you were saying. Yeah, and there's also fun in seeing how uh, said kind of uh, those demographic maps align with, uh, what's the best way to put it, the overlap between those aspects as well as geographical aspects. Um, I, there, I think there's quite a number of countries um, where the lines are literally at like uh, mountain uh, mountain ranges because it's just it just makes sense to divide it there when no one's going to try to contest those borders. Like, like Italy and Switzerland, for example, very strong on the mountain borders. Uh, another one that's cool to look at is uh, religious, or sorry, religion in general, because oftentimes they won't match up with country borders either, especially in fantasy realms. Yeah, I, I think for myself that there is nothing quite as enjoyable as looking through one of those all-purpose fantasy maps. I mean, you know, all the... I'm thinking back to, like, the maps that you find in novels like uh, Game of Thrones, um, which kind of open up first couple pages. You've got this uh, new map for you to explore, and um, I've just always enjoyed kind of looking those over and uh, trying to learn from them. Um, but as I've done more map uh, making cartography myself, I've definitely gravitated toward political maps and something that tries to tell a story or have a specific function within that world. Um, and because like those all-purpose fantasy maps for the settings that I create don't really work. I've got uh, one that's based on like the 1900s and another one that I'm working on kind of brand new right now, which is uh, more futuristic. And, you know, those are going to be looking for maps that are going to be more interested in like, where can you go to trade? Um, where is safe to go? What countries like us? Um, and so that's kind of the direction I've gone in the last couple of years is trying to figure out what fits the world that I'm making uh, and then design it with a purpose for that setting. You know, I, I've always um, I've always liked like the insert maps for fantasy novels. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings is iconic, but I feel like you can tell if a novel is going to be bad, good or just bad by the quality of its map. Like if it's like really nice, like 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 what are the rings tier? You know, like, OK, I'm in I'm in for a good ride. But if it's too nice or really bad, you, you're like, I don't know. And if it's absolute like black and white drawn with a pencil crap like Westeros, you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be some good stuff right here. I love that you're basically saying the map can't be too good. Otherwise, it's suspicious. <laughs> oh, it's straight up way too suspicious. If your map is gorgeous, like full color insert, beautiful work, took 100 hours to make your books trash. 
Fucking compensating. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Looks at all those D&D maps. Wait a second. <laughs> that all makes sense now. I find maps to be a very good way to communicate information that plot otherwise can't touch on. And Tyler, you and I, or excuse me, cut that. I know you and I stand on the opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to map making. Yours are typically over-detailed and, well, okay, over-detailed is a bit of a harsh word, but very detailed, very intricate. And in a lot of ways, I can find a more simple map a little bit more immersive for a player because most players won't really dive into the minutia of details of political spectrum or religious ideology across of a, a historical era. And a lot of times, simple maps can allow them to wonder what is in those gaps and kind of fill it in on their own, especially if you're doing something like role-playing where they, they can really generate those things. I guess to, uh, to Rag's point, that kind of goes back to what Tyler said. Um, with map making for a purpose, when you set out to create create one of these uh, create one of these maps, you're doing it because you either want to relay some bits of information that you might not be able to do so in in a text or description or narration, or well, in a comfortable way, it can be really awkward to communicate stupid stuff like that. Well, stupid stuff, but it can be really awkward to communicate stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's also a window to kind of widen widen the image of the world without having to go into those details in text if you were writing a novel for example because there's not always a good time to mention the small village of river rot on the east side of town during a book but if you know it's going to be like relevant maybe in another section another work or in the later part of the book it's good to have that just to, if if only to kind of clue in your players not players your readers that there is something wider going on there's something uh there's a scale to your world that you're going to build on but you can't quite introduce in the first few chapters for example yeah and it's also just helpful like as you know if we're talking about books for a second here uh if you know your main characters are traveling you can kind of get an idea of where they are and how far they're traveling a lot easier with the help of a map. Like you don't have to spend time in the prose going over, uh, you know, where in relation to where they just were, um, this new place is. You can just kind of mention it, say it's you know north. They've they've been traveling north or whatever. And then just sort of the map through the rest of the work of the details of how far that is and so on. Um, I to, to definitely agree and to give a good example of this, I would point to the map of Allegasia, the world of Ar the Aragon inheritance cycle, because it's the, the entire center of it is is empty. It, it's just, oh, here's a here's a big desert. But everything around the edges, it's populated. But just about everywhere that's mentioned gets talked about just kind of eventually. So you have an idea as to where people are going and what they're, what's going to happen. And by having less amount of stuff on the map, it's easier to gauge when and how things are going to develop as they develop. So it, it kind of almost allows your readers or players to guess what's going to happen next or to help make your mind up about where to go next. It's also just easier to understand you know, by not having like, because, you know, real maps, when you look at them, have hundreds of countries, each with their own important places to, to talk about with their own cultures and, you know, variations on those cultures and stuff like it is complex. Um, so when you're making like a world map and you want to make it realistic, it's going to be complex. But 
sometimes it's important to also know when to pull it back and do something like what we're talking about here with uh, the inheritance cycle um, with Aragon and all those books. Uh, I think one of the things that they did best was make the map very digestible. And it's just like, all right, I'm just going to look at these things along the coast. And there's this one other country in the south. And I think that was pretty much it, aside from the desert you mentioned. Um, so, you, you know, picking it up was very easy to just kind of look at that. And there's enough to explore, but not enough to be overwhelmed. On on the, I guess, to take it to extreme, uh, well, we can kind of tout the, uh, not exactly the minimalist map, but rather the map that addresses the essentials. I think it's also, it's it can be easy to take it too far. Um because I am guilty of doing just that. I, uh, yes, uh, my most recent map, it, it looked great. I used Wonder Draft to create it, and it looked fantastic. But I spent so much time in Wonder Draft that uh, I got lazy and I forgot to put city names despite coloring my political borders. So now it is, it is to scale. I can use a scale, but I have no idea where everything is. It's an easily fixable mistake. I guess my uh my point here is that it it there's things that uh map making can take time, so I think it's also a matter of allocating and focusing on what needs to be there, what's essential for that map. Yeah, I mean it it took me like seven years to make a world map for my primary setting, and now I'm starting another setting. So yeesh. <laughs> that is a rabbit hole, my friend. <laughs> you are. Yeah. I honestly don't even know if I'm going to make a map for this, though, um, because the the purpose of this is a little bit different. My entire purpose with the first world is to write for it. And so I want a map to help myself navigate things and to help readers navigate things. The, this new world that I'm working on, without getting into too much detail, is not just for literature. And any literature that I have planned right now is like, short stories which you don't need a map for you can just talk about like it just it's going to be set in one part of a one city or something it's not as necessary in that scenario um and so i'm kind of very much debating at this point like i need to know generally where things are but i don't know if i need to know the specifics or worry about them or have the audience worry about them because i don't want to distract them from the plots or the world building or any of the more the things that I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm, I get that. I think um, probably rough maps in the early stages of a, of a setting or setting up a setting, building a setting. Uh, it's probably a good thing, but it kind of goes back to the adage of um, trying to do too much at the start before you get into it. Which is, it's it's fun. It's great. Diving into small details and how you want the map to look. It, it, it's a great feeling to be able to create in that sense. But um, as far as establishing and really sinking the foundations of entire setting, there, there's that uh, there's that management of how much you want to dedicate as a, as a creator into this part. Because time and in some cases, creative juices can be limited, or at least for a, for a short period of a for a short period of time. 
So it becomes important to balance just how much you want to say, these are all the locations and this is the locations I need versus I want to map it all out because it's just such a great world and I want to have it in my head and know it, even though I might not touch certain places until a, cer until a later point. And I think that when you have a map that, that kind of expands like that, that even if you don't think you're going to touch it for a while, it still gives you the option for it to be there all along versus having to kind of pull back the curtain and go, well, this place now exists, um, which I am always more of a fan of trying to make the world feel as large as as it can be while still being understandable, though I will admit that I suffer in uh, trying to make it understandable. Um, I just want big maps full of cool things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, with the the first one that I was I've been talking about that does have a complete world map. The reason I made it was so that everything was up front, and then later I can be like, all right, I'm going to travel over here now, um, and it's not that random surprise of, oh, we found another part of the world. That's cool. Like the, the setting is again, like I said, 1900s, uh, generally time period. And at that point with that level of technology, everything's pretty much been found. There might be a couple of remote islands somewhere that are hard to find, but like, if we're being honest, um, that doesn't work as well. Now, if it was like a high fantasy thing where you could have like a magical mist obscuring a portion of the sea and the first person to uh, finally make it through could discover a whole new area or, you know, technology advances and people, you know, are able to get somewhere they couldn't before. Like that makes more sense. It's just, it doesn't work in my setting. A uh, bit of a tangent, but in a lot of ways with that kind of setting, it's really easy and, in fact, kind of ingratiating to have things hidden in plain sight where things aren't really what they are at first blush or they can be buried in the um, the deep wilderness or something because not all the world's civilized after all and maps can be faulty. Yeah, for sure. I, I love when, you know, you people put that into consideration. So like forest, you said, you could have this massive forest um, that's just labeled whatever the forest is called but then you know if you're writing this book or running a campaign your characters go into the forest suddenly they find a whole new civilization that's way more advanced than anyone thought and you know suddenly you're presented with a whole new map of that forest which has all of these roads and cities and towns and all these different things that just didn't exist on the main map that's that's a great usage of it though is that a map is a tool that's created by people um i guess you might want to be honest when you say this is a map that's created by uh characters in the setting versus this is a map that you're gonna i guess this is more useful for uh like a role-playing game like D D or uh however else is that this is a map that i as the gm created for your usage versus this is a map that someone in this world created according to their knowledge and more than likely their biases and this just kind of goes and uh, connects to real life maps um his old historical maps where you had europe as the uh, center of the world or uh <clears throat> who was it? who else did it there were a lot of people that did that um, not just in Europe, but also in uh, in the Middle East and Asia, where they would put their homeland as the center of the world and created according to uh, how they explored around. 
It's a, it's essentially everyone who does that. <laughs> and even Cause... with those maps, even with those maps, you have the uh, metatypical Herpy Dragons because they didn't know it was in certain locations. Well, and you would also start in the middle with what you knew because that was the scale you knew and that was the terrain you definitively knew and you had the best reports on. And then so the most detailed parts that and then it expands out and the periphery gets less and less well known. And it's also how you get uh, situations like having the old world and the new world. There obviously was no real difference between the two, but the people who made the map just found one half first. Um and, you know, when naming things on your map, that's something else to keep in mind as well, is who discovered it and what are their experiences. Um, like, we, you know, we wouldn't have New York State without York in England. So, um, you know, and, and when you look back at the, the history of map making and, and what kind of maps they made and shown, um, you know, I think it's easy for us in the modern day to look back at maps and say, oh, that's so wrong and this, that, the other thing that how could they mess up this poorly? Um, but I mean, like if you look back at, at Ptolemy's world map from the Hellenistic age, it, it's a pretty, pretty accurate representation of Europe and Western Asia. Um, and a little it, Africa's kind of oxy, but it, the basic form is there. You know, it's it's this interesting thing where you can see that they've slowly tried to make it so that way it gives as much information as possible while trying to show the world as they saw it. And I think that's the one thing to keep in mind when you're trying to make an in-world map is that it's how they see the world. So it's okay if it looks a little weird. Yeah, I mean, depending on technology at the time of whenever your setting is happening, um, maybe it should look off. Like if you want it to look like these maps from i don't know the middle ages like it should not have correct dimensions and i think that's just kind of on a larger note like if you're building a map or if you're commissioning one with someone um and you want it to have a specific style that we have already explored through our history uh obviously like i don't know what a sci-fi map is going to look like once we get to that point where we have holograms and start tossing information about uh, geology on them or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, if you're building that fantasy world or you're building a more recent history setting or modern day, there's so many great references for you to find. Um, and, you know, from that you can pull the uh, colors of ink that, they would use on those maps or uh, the, I guess, graphic design, if it's a more modern style. Um, so definitely, like, if you are making one or thinking of making one uh, and you can get solid references like that, definitely try to. So, Adam, what you're, what you're saying is that I can pawn off my bad art skills onto the fact that the people of my world just aren't advanced enough to create good-looking maps. Yes. Uh, um, Excellent. The, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is basically you can create an in-world map, and so long as it achieves whatever they need to achieve, then it is a good map. Um, so, you know, the proportions might be off. The 
uh, map might be misleading. Um, you so long as you can explain all of this stuff with you know your world building or lore or what have you, uh, then it works. I guess this kind of brings into the point that one of the def one of the main factors of what is a good map is does it do its job that it's set out to do? If it's supposed to give a piece of information, because all maps are just a way to share information and data. So if the map can sufficiently and succinctly give the information it's set out to, you're going to be able to say that your map is a good map in that it works and that it does its job. And I think that that's, that's easily half the battle. The other half is aesthetic, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But so long as your map gives the information it's supposed to be that trade lanes, wind currents, political borders, religious borders, etc. So long as it does its job and does it well, it's a good map. One of my favorite utilizations, excuse me, one of my favorite utilizations for maps is one I, I feel is a little bit underappreciated, but you see it more in novels, but um, maps can be used to show the march of time that what story you're seeing really isn't just the whole thing. And I know you touched on this earlier in scope, but it can be used to show just that the world itself isn't static waiting for the hero to push the dominoes over or that the party isn't the only thing that's going on across a single book you could have several maps inserted across chapters and just show like what's happening and without having to do so messily with words got that i guess yeah i've always had a fondness for that as well um there's a series by brian mcclellan i've probably mentioned before on this podcast um there's uh <laughs> yeah there's uh there's a map in each of his Powder Mage books, and in the first trilogy, uh, you know, it is what it is. It's a map of the country of Adro is included, and there's a mountain in the southeastern portion of the country where maybe a good third of the story takes place, roughly. Um, and then at the end of the story, without spoiling anything, uh, something happens there that... Uh, causes destruction on the mountaintop. Uh, and in the rest of the book's maps, the mountain is destroyed, uh, like on the top third of it. Uh, they went through and like changed the art to make it fit what happened in the world, which I always thought was a really nice touch. You know, by changing the face of a map, you can help show the world changes like, like Mike and um, like Rag and Adam have said. I guess that the point being, if it's there to help tell the story, then something like this will definitely help do that. Um, so how does one do that, though? Well, I, I guess basically you have to find a reference of sort. What, what kind of style are you trying to emulate? Atlas-styled maps can share information, a whole slew of information, but they don't really tend to fit RPGs and... Uh, books. So if you look at historical maps, like we mentioned, especially some of the world maps, um, like Mercador's first project projection, or Ptolemy's map, you can see how they try to share information about the world as they know it. Um, and I think that that will help you understand ways that you can go about it, and not necessarily have to stress too much about being perfect and making it as accurate as possible. Because if you look at their maps, if you look at our maps, even today, they're not at, they're not perfect. They're just as accurate as they can get them. And we're always getting better at it. So I, I hate to see it when people just get like so wound up and strung up on the idea of having to make their map perfect. 
because if you look at the references, if you look at history, if you look at modern maps, there's there's room for error, and it's okay. That made me feel good, because I'm not good at making maps. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for saying that for all of us. All right, so let's get right into the meat of it, you know, half an hour in. Um, <laughs> how, how does one design a map or use it to plot your setting? Um, I, I guess it doesn't really matter how you start, but you have to look at it from the angle of, do you have information that you need to show or do you need an outline before you can create the information? Do you, do you have like an idea of the main country and the kingdoms around it and some features, or are you at a loss and you're like, I, I know that he comes from like this one small place, but I, I need to know where, where, where she's going to go from here. And if, you need either of them, then I guess that the best thing to do is to always keep in mind that you're the creator of the map, so you can change it at any point in time. So if you have tons of ideas and you put it out on the page and you're like, oh, this looks awful, I need to fix this, fix it. Don't don't stress or obsess, just fix it. And if you don't know what to put down, then run a rough sketch. Um, so I guess for you guys, how do you guys start when you make a map for a setting for the first time? Before we get into how to start, uh, I just want to kind of comment on what you said as well. Um, I do agree that, yes, you know, it's your map. Feel free to change it at any point. Don't uh, worry about it. If there's a problem, go ahead and fix it. Um, but one thing I've noticed with a lot of people who do this kind of stuff is they will, even if they're fixing something, stress over it and keep fixing it and... Uh, repeatedly go back to the drawing board, sometimes redoing the whole map over and over. Um, you know, if that's what you want to do and that works for you, then that's fine. I'm not knocking it. But for myself, I've found that at a certain point, I kind of just have to look at what I've created and just sort of accept whatever it is. Um, now, if there's an egregious problem, like... Um, there's a piece that just makes absolutely no sense or ruins a plot for in some way, uh, then I will go back and fix that. But instead at this point, now that I've done what I set out to do and created the world map, um, what I intend to do if I see any conflicts is see if there's another way around it other than changing the map because I don't want to fall into that loop of remaking this thing so many times like i said it's uh like i said earlier it has taken me about seven years to get to the point where it's done um and i don't want to spend another seven on the same map uh so yeah i guess feel free to change it um it is absolutely your right to do so as the map creator and such as the world creator. Uh, but also I would stress personally, and just from my own experience, as well as from what I've seen other people doing, uh, it can be very repetitive if you can't get it to a point where you are happy with it or can't accept it. Um, sometimes you just kind of have to look at what you've done and be like, all right, this is what it is how do my characters deal with that? How do the countries in this setting deal with that? If you've got, for example, an isthmus that just feels extremely thin, don't 
erase it if you don't have to instead explain it talk about it write some lore about it maybe there was some event where it used to be larger and the water levels rose or some of the land was torn away uh, you can build some really interesting stories out of these little things that you find uh, that don't require you to completely redo or change a piece of it. Uh, that is definitely true. I, th I think there is always a point where you have to say enough's enough and kind of settle on what you want the world to look like. Um, so you are, you're definitely right that it, getting stuck in the loop as it would of re like getting stuck in the loop as it would of edits and redos and reworks. It, it's just as disruptive as not getting the map done. So I think at some point you have to, come to terms with the rougher parts of the map and just accept it for what it is and try and find ways, like Adam has said, lore ways around it. Yeah. Uh, and to kind of answer your actual question, how do you begin to answer your question of how you begin a map for myself? Uh, it's an alternate, it's a process where I alternate between creating the story that the world is set in. Um, no, I, it's, an, it's a process where I alternate between creating the plots and the uh, world building and then work on the map for a while and then go back and forth. Like it, the map that I've been talking about this whole time took seven years because I didn't do it all at once. I created a country for a story I was working on and then the story changed. So I redid the country and then the story changed again so I added to the map and included neighboring countries. And it kind of just kept going back and forth like that until I was happy with the story and the story informed the map just as pieces of the map began to inform uh, you know, important locations that a story could go in. Um, so it's a very long process, but I personally think it's the most fun to be doing it all kind of at the same time and just not rush anything and just sort of let everything kind of inform itself. I, uh, I I mainly write everything down or I, yeah, I just write everything down. And then when I come to the point after putting it off for probably weeks, if not months into my world building, I will eventually make a map because I think at that point I have to either for my own for my own usage or because I intend to have it as a graphic for my players, for example, if it was a and d game. Um, as far as making the map is, I'm very minimalistic. I, I already mentioned my, my little blunder with not putting cities on it because I got tired of making a map. But that is <laughs> kind of... <laughs> That is that is kind I of my. It, uh... I think it's great, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it was so pretty. I'm like, I'm gonna make a pretty map this one time, but it's not as useful. Um, but I don't think that's that's more of a thing on me. That's more of how I operate. It's a satellite than... <laughs> map. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's from a bird's eye view, guys. Literally, a bird wrote it, so I wouldn't know the city names. But uh... those darn archives. <laughs> yes, but uh, <laughs> before then. Uh, I did have a penchant of just making the same map and tweaking it. Um, literally, I wouldn't bother with the art changes or even putting geo like mountains or forests or whatever. It's just names of cities on a map, and I color in areas as they are needed for factions. Um, 
that is my very what's what's the best way my pragmatic way of going about it since i'm not since i'm not into the whole map making scene as uh, as much as i probably should be considering its usefulness um in that case I kind of go on the kind of going beyond the narrative, going beyond, oh, this is because people don't know it yet. I can reason it like that, but for my purposes specifically, because they are just meant to be a tool, uh, a graphic tool um, that I use for date, not dates, for um, travel and what have you, um, to help give exposition. I just base it off what information I've written down. I don't do much more than that. I don't do map making, world building, if that makes sense. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, everyone does it their own way. Yeah, I definitely sympathize with you a lot. Matter of fact, my own map making goes a lot of the same way. But I find in a lot of ways it's hard to do uh, planned out map making because you don't always need a map. It's always when it gets to that particular point where you're like, damn, I kind of need a map for this, where I'll, I'll start putting together the plan for one. Because some information will sit together without having something explicitly drawn down. It's like, okay, this is this far. But you do run the risk of forgetting. And when it gets to that point, when you should have already started. Uh, but making a map can be foreboding or even intimidating, but it is something that is essential to do before it becomes something worse. And, and so I end up doing it just right about then. And it's a little abstract, but... I can't really give you a better measure. I think personally, a lot of my map making is my world building and it informs a lot of what I do and, you know, vice versa. There's a lot of things that I write that turn into informing the map. Things then have to make sense to, to one another. You have to consolidate and make them reckon. So I think even informing your maps that way and using them that way can also be just a lot of work. So kind of having something that's more tool based isn't, isn't necessarily a bad thing. I am 100% going to kneecap you right now. You struggle with your own map so much. You've redesigned <laughs> your own map how many times? Uh, Probably three digits. Yeah, man. Wait, three digits? Yeah. I think in my Google Drive, I have something like 19 different wait, versions wait, of my map. Wait, 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 what? When you oh, say three 20. digits, you don't mean three, right? You mean like... Over a hundred, like times. in the hundreds, like, like in the hundreds, yeah. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. He has legitimately lost his map three times. That doesn't. Oh my count. god. <laughs> Completely started over. We're not even considering the paper ones. Do I, we? I, there's a box of paper in like literally several feet from me that is just filled with different forms of my my main continent. If you oh my make god. it one, if you remake it one more time. We are going to have to have an intervention. <laughs> hey, Tyler, when we were talking about demographic maps, were you thinking about that? Oh, definitely, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I'll, I'll totally help you not do that. <laughs> I, uh, I drew a demographic map once and tried oh, God, no. being a political map, but a little bit colorful. <laughs> so, so I'm just curious. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm familiar with redoing maps and stuff, and I've seen a lot of people do it. What kind of how did you make hundreds <laughs> um well i guess this is where my point comes in that you have to eventually learn to just accept some of the flaws because i used to not be able to accept the flaws so i'd finish this map ink it it'd be final and then i'd go i really really hate this one insignificant peninsula and redraw the entire map like, I don't mean just redraw that one part, but like I change that and yeah. then the impetus would hit and you change something else and else. And then it's something different. And you finish that and you go, wait, no, got to bring it back to the other one. And it just kind and of, of course, every time you do it, it doesn't quite 100% transfer the same way. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, that's what I liked when I switched to using mapping programs and then, you know, computer programs for it, because it's so much easier to just erase things and change things that way, instead of getting a finished finalized project product that took, you know, a dozen hours and then go, oh, damn. You know, Tyler, you would have made a great 13th century monk, just cre- recreating and creating the same map over again. The uh, the most beautiful illuminated manuscripts of all time. <laughs> you know, you're not the first person that told me that I'd make a good 13th century monk. Well, they also brewed beer, and I do that too. So, yeah, I mean, I brewed beer with my father, and it's been a horrible, disgusting process that I love. Um, oh, yeah, it's beer. Yeah. You're really selling it on me right now. It, it tastes almost spoiled when you do it correctly. That's how you know you did it correctly, because it doesn't taste actually spoiled, just almost spoiled. That's not it. And I will talk about this another time. <laughs> <laughs> This this isn't the mapping. This isn't the podcast podcast about beer and brewing. That's next season. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here, folks. (laughs) All right, we'll note that down. Yeah. If anyone ever asks you what your spirit animal is, Tyler, just say 13th century monk. (laughs) Perfect. Keep it in mind. Um, So I guess from here we will uh, shift to a topic we kind of just touched on, which is the idea of world building and map making and how you can and the synthesization of the two because one kind of informs the other and a good map will keep its setting in mind and a good setting will keep its map in mind and i know that doesn't sound terribly helpful but when it comes to sharing that information i think it comes down to this concept i i like to bring up which is aesthetic versus realism and realism is such a hard thing to grasp. I mean, even if you take geology, geography, and cartography in our own world, it takes graduate level courses to fully grasp our own concepts of these. Um, and aesthetic is something that you just develop an eye for and you can you can kind of understand it. Um, so one's a little bit easier to get than the other. And I find that the end with realism isn't that it's a faulty pursuit to try to attain it. It's just that it's a difficult one that people obsess over. And then it isn't so much that they settle for it, but that they convince themselves that this half done approach to it is the full true approach of getting realism. Um, And I, I think that that's a kind of a loaded topic, but there's something there that people just kind of take for granted the, what people tell them and take it as gospel and go, okay, well this, this person obviously knows what they're doing. And they said, if I need a realistic map, my rivers all have to go to the sea and my mountains have to line up with my plates. And there's these things that are half truths that don't necessarily match reality and taking it as gospel. In fact, I think is um, not necessarily dangerous, but it is a bit brash and foolish. Just to clarify here, are you sort of doing this cautionary tale because there are exceptions to the rules or because uh, you're encouraging people to do what they want more than what they think should be the case? I I think it's kind of both because I think that the rules themselves that, you know, are laid out um, by certain people uh, who are pundits of world building, they're not necessarily true. Um, They're just like this kind of perception of what the truth is like take rivers for example 
rivers go down from high elevation to the sea, right? That that you know, they always have to go somewhere. Well, that's not true. Rivers go from from elevation that it's at to the immediate lowest place it can be, and if it reaches that, it then pools or in this case if it reaches the sea, it pools into the sea. So you I see a lot of people lately who drag their rivers all over their continents trying to get to the sea because they have to get to the sea or an ocean and that's not necessarily true that's not that's not a fact it, it's just where it ends if whether it be that a lake or it drags off into a brook into a watershed um there's a lot of different options there that are the rule where it'll go from high to low and then stop if it pools yeah i feel like people forget about small lakes like we see i think plenty of large lakes or seas inland um but, you know, it's so, I think, rare for me to find someone else who's working on a map and they've got some, like, pools or smaller lakes scattered around. You know, and I think that has to do with aesthetic. It, it, it looks messy and um, just a little too active and distracting to have an actual watershed shown. Like, having those small lakes can be just a bit too much information, you know? I think there's a reason that a map that only shows... Uh water uh rivers water lines bodies of water is a thing because i i would not be able to read a map if it had all of that on it on top of other geographical uh uh symbols and then cities on top of it it, it honestly look i guess it, this plays into aesthetic it'd be a bit too cluttered and too confusing for what you just want to uh convey to whoever's looking at it yeah i think it depends on the context for sure uh, and you don't want to, like you're saying, confuse or uh, distract someone from what is important. Uh, like one of the things that I think we agreed we liked about the map of Alagazia that Christopher Pallini made was that it was very easy to digest and uh, read. There wasn't really a lot in the way and um, it, it was very well designed for you know, a quick read at the start of the story or reflecting back to it and looking for that uh, city name that you just happened upon in the prose. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, I think there is, though, generally speaking, a little more room for using smaller lakes or pools, kind of depending on the scale of the map. Um, but again, like if that interacts poorly with text or other iconography, uh, then that could be a problem. I actually don't mind. I think it's kind of not exactly the opposite, but kind of the opposite for me. I feel as though if it's big enough, like a big enough um, body of water, big enough. Um, oh God, what are, what are they called? Geogra the land structures. Shoot, landmark. Landmarks, landmarks, or um, the opposite, the land version of bodies of water. I can't think of it. landforms. That's what it is. Landmasses. Um, like mountains and volcanoes and that okay. stuff. If they're notable enough and big enough, they probably should be on your map. Because if they're that big, it's highly unlikely people don't care about them. Um, so it might be notable for whoever might be looking at it. But um, essentializing those small lakes and rivers, I think that's uh, that's kind of, in my opinion, that is cluttered that you can get rid of. Unless it's specifically a smaller map of an area that can afford to have dad level detail on it because you're only yeah. a small bit 
Yeah, it definitely depends on the context of what you're doing. Like if you're doing a whole country, you just focus on the major rivers and large lakes. If you're doing a city, then you can go in more granular detail. Uh, but again, like in both cases, if adding these elements can clutter the page or confuse the reader or get in the way of text that you need to read, then you need to cut those elements or move them. Um, because as we've been talking about from the very beginning, the map is a tool for people to share information. And if that information is difficult to access or understand, then it's not doing its job. I guess my interest in uh, lakes and uh, sort of the inverse uh, islands as well is definitely more aesthetic. Um, I, when you look at a real map, you know, you see those small details of uh, when you look at a map of, I guess, our world, for example, you see this, the small lakes and the tributaries and the uh, little islands that uh, exist around the coast and stuff. And uh, I, I like to try to represent that in my own work as well. Um, but yeah, I, I do generally agree with uh, Makinate here that we need to think about the reader's perspective first. In a lot of ways, it's easy to forget that rivers make up no more... Or actually, I think it's far less than 1% of the world's water. So it's really easy to have a lot... Sorry, let me start over. It's, it's really easy to have a, a misestimation of scale and just how many rivers or how major they can be in your setting, especially when you're unsure of how big your map really is. And it, Again, it comes back to how good it is to represent scope, but when interacting with mountains and such, it's not necessary that you have a river come down from a mountain. In a lot of ways, this is a li little more intricate, but you have to consider drainage, which is... Ah, I don't want to get into it. I mean, in, in the idea about showing rivers and different bodies of water, you also have to keep your scale in mind. So scale isn't necessarily the size of my symbols because I've seen a lot of people get kind of upset with like specifically Wonder Draft when they're like, oh, my mountains and my trees are so close in the same height. That makes no sense. Symbol sizes are never considered for scale because then your trees would be color because they'd be individual little dots because of how small they'd be compared to your mountains. And this kind of comes back to rivers where you're not really going to have a scale for your rivers because if you're on a continent sized map, your pixels could be one mile to your scale. So one pixel equals one mile for the scale. That means that if you have a one pixel wide river, which would then be barely noticeable, it'd still be a mile wide river, which that's essentially unheard of. It's absurd. Like, yeah. no, no play about it. It's absurd. And that's part of where, you know, your artistic representation comes into in. That's part of where your artistic representation comes in, because if that river is really important, uh, let's say it's a major trade river that a couple of nations use to move goods, soldiers, uh, fish along, etc. Um, then it should be represented. And maybe it's not to scale, but you need to have that knowledge of where it's located on your map because of its importance to so many people. Um, sorry, I was since we were talking about scale, I was going to throw myself into the pit of terrible, terrible oh, no. scale placement <laughs> or scale choice. Um, that kind of worked out. So there is a there is a happy ending um, for this campaign that I'm currently running. I ended up making a continent. I though I was thinking it was going to be the size of Europe and about maybe like the western areas of Russia, like that 
where where um kind of Soviet Union the the hubs would have been um towards Moscow and the like not not any farther not like Siberia uh, entirety of Russia, but ultimately the way I designed the map and my end game scale I ended up with probably all of Asia rather than a <laughs> scale according to Europe, so it was a really massive change, um and as I was thinking it this was really bad because it made it didn't make my conflicts uh it threw a wrench into my conflicts, the reasoning for them. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, there's a lot of long-lived races who can probably afford to have extended wars. So taking the time to travel wouldn't exactly be terrible. Plus with magic, that would mean they'd have, they could create resources to sustain their armies as they travel, as they go from one place to another. And it would make engagements probably short and one-offs, but extremely volatile because of the presence of magic. So ultimately, while I did intend it at first, the scale that was honestly terrible, I still think it is pretty bad because it ruins a lot of normal travel. Um, it can be used to, if I guess with enough flexibility, uh, my world building kind of warped to, uh, to accommodate the scale that I had created for it. Um, and that included massive cities that were hubs of themselves, but were very much uh, isolated aside from uh, magical transport or other sorts of ex expedited travel. I really like that. That's a good way of kind of letting the map inform the world building a little bit and vice versa by bringing in those longer lived races. That's cool. I like it. Thanks, because I did not think it would work out like that at all. That was not my intention. No, it's 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 a really interesting detail, I think. I've never heard of something like that in someone else's world building, so that's cool. Okay, so I guess from here we can kind of talk a bit about what we just touched upon a little bit of the idea of like this concept of misinformation mixed with god word of this concept of misinformation mixed with gospel truth essentially of map making and the one thing i find when i talk to world builders that they get hung up on when map making and shaping their worlds the most and that's tectonic plates the basics of tectonics is that there are these massive plates on the surface of the earth and they're fueled by the convection of our core to move, grow, and shrink. And then they, when they touch, they either scrunch up and go up, or one pops underneath the other one slowly going down. Sometimes they grind along the long run ridge, but it's only for short periods before a piece pops and it goes back into either the going up or going down. Um, to further this, there's the concept of oceanic and continental which have their own differences in how they work because when oceanic crust goes underneath continental, it creates lava pockets, which creates volcanism. It's, it's all this very involved process. Um, and kind of brushing up and learning a bit about it can be very helpful and learning how it creates mountains and rifts and moves continents and uh, essentially can make continents. If you look at the history of North America and how, Two land masses getting together created a basin that made the Great Plains. It's all, in my opinion, very interesting stuff. But I find that people get a little too hung up on it and trying to properly simulate it. And just from my knowledge of tectonics, to properly simulate tectonics, you'd have to simulate 
all of it from when your world cooled from magmatic rock from its creation to the present. Because if you're going to have a proper done, true, realistic mountain approach, you're going to have mountains that aren't on your tectonic borders. They're going to be on old tectonic borders, like the Appalachians, like the Alps, which are near tectonic border that's essentially dead. It's never that it's on it. It's that it was near it. And sometimes it is on it. So this is the contradictory nature of tectonic plates, because depending on which combination of oceanic, continental, divergent, convergent, transform, it all changes how you will form mountains and how you will form rifts and how you will form continents. And in a thousand words or less, I would essentially just say, it's okay to just kind of wing it. Your mountains can be anywhere. It's okay. Yeah, I'd 100% like admire anyone who goes through all that effort to realistically use tectonics to shape their world. But it's yeah, not for me. Yeah. Um, it's not for me, though, just because I want to spend that time, honestly. Like, I don't know enough about it. Like, we kind of talked about the basics here a little bit. And I know a lot about kind of how the mountain ranges are formed and stuff. Um, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I know some about that. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to spend that time when I could be world building or working on my map trying to figure out the intricacies of these tectonic plates. Now, if I know the basics about it, I can sort of fudge it a little bit. Um, and it can help me kind of determine, you know, where might earthquakes be. Uh, if there's a new mountain range, if there's a new mountain range, for example, then I might be able to say, you know, there are more earthquakes here and that could change the society or the people. Um, versus an old mountain range or fields. But um, yeah, generally I just find it isn't super important and it's not really worth, for me, the effort of going through it. In a lot of ways, the shape of plates can be rather abstract anyway. So defining them to a T like that has very minimal use other than for your own purposes. Well, mountains themselves are incredibly important for a map. Other than, say, earthquakes, as Adam mentioned, or... Uh, perhaps the shifting or trajectories of islands as they detach. Really, how is tectonics going to come into play in your world directly? Plates don't move over the course of days or hours unless you're doing something magic, then maybe. Uh, but besides that, typically they won't have direct interaction unless you're talking about like rain shadow. I think having the idea of where your plates are, as specific as that is, it can be, uh, what's the best way to put it? Not exactly planning for the future, but it can be a good, place to kind of build more from even though technically place where you do that with land masses that's a fair point um i don't know something with subterranean uh world building something that goes on in the deepest parts of the oceans things like that could be played into it um however i will agree that in general it's might it probably won't be at the forefront but as uh as rag mentioned it is useful for determining where islands might be, where mountains could have uh, originated from the point that they, the, the, the plates clash against each other. Um, however, from kind of going beyond the in-world reasoning, the practicalities, I think there is kind of a cool factor and a aha factor to using the idea of plates that there are these two continents that had once been together, but 
they have in the eons uh, come apart. And as players or players or the audience goes from one place to the next, they start seeing the uh, kind of start seeing the connection between the shapes on the maps and saying, oh, so it's like this because that place was connected at one point and then eventually they grew apart and that's why there's similar uh, either structures or maybe some cataclysm had caused the lands to, uh, the plates to shift and cause the lands to split and that's why there's similarities between these two dis- distant areas. Those are just examples of using the idea of um, natural kind of geographical processes and giving your own spin to it to kind of enhance not necessarily just enhance but all just like in your world building incorporating and kind of doing that middle ground between um the practical and the scientifical versus the possibly not plausible but that is where fiction and the power of imagination and creativity comes along is that you can make something as a combination of that you know as you mentioned it as you mentioned, that satisfying connection between two continents that fit together. It reminds me of like in grade school where my teacher told me, oh, some kids said that South South America and Africa fit together. And his teacher told him he was an idiot. But, you know, in reality, yeah. <laughs> or that they make a T-Rex if you angle one. Versus, <laughs> versus the other. Yeah. All right. As a kind of an aside, though, for what you were saying, kind of made me think when you said like a cataclysm. I, I now want a set to like read about a setting that it's like, you know, like every good fantasy story has some cataclysmic event where the cataclysmic event of this setting is like a 2012, like the movie 2012 natural disaster apocalypse where the whole world shifts. Yeah, I think I don't know a lot about it, but I'm pretty sure our friend Blue is doing something like that. Um, I don't know. Something to ask him about one day. Although, yeah, like I said, I, I don't know a lot about what he's working on, and I've never seen that movie, so take it all with a grain of salt. <laughs> I guess it did come out eight years ago now. I guess it's acceptable that people don't know about it. It's also just not my jam. I, I, I like yeah. apocalypse movies. Come on. Day After Tomorrow, Weather Apocalypse. Yeah, I don't know if I even saw that one either. Well, I'm not surprised, but I'm still disappointed. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Well, if you don't mind. Could you explain like the Bay bare bones plot of it for us? Because even I didn't see it. Um, so basically, it was kind of talking about how back in 2012, the world was supposed to end. Um, and so this movie came out kind of a prediction of what would happen. And, you know, as Hollywood does with over the top blockbusters. But essentially, it follows the premise that like tectonics and convection of the Earth were going to shift how the continents were earthquakes were going to happen and rock the world. The magnetic core was going to shift. Things were going to get flooded Mount, um, I'm out, but, um, Yellowstone would erupt like that kind of thing. And it was all these cataclysmic Titanic events that were geographic that were going to culminate in essentially destroying the world and resetting it. Um, and like at the end of it though, they kind of talk about how, Southern Africa escapes unscathed because it didn't sink. It like went up like a couple hundred feet and how Europe has sunk in and all these different parts of the world have totally changed and were, would be unrecognizable for what we know it as. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And it has John Cusack in it. So, you know, it's, it's pretty decent. Yeah. No idea who that is. God damn it. Adam. <laughs> 
Uh, Tyler, I mean, going off of like what you know of tectonics, aren't aren't shifts that cause earthquakes no more than like centimeters? Oh yeah, like the movie's yeah. totally fiction. Okay, okay. It, it, it's hysterical, it, but the movie is trumped up to be fake. But it's it's like all this stuff happening. It, it's just an enjoyable action romp with the world ending. You know, good apocalypse. Right. And, and John Cusack. And John Cusack, exactly. <laughs> right now. Just Google him. You know who I just is. said I was. <laughs> it okay, yeah, that, I've seen him before. This is so tangent, but it reminds me of that. I think it was an earthquake in 2011, a little bit before that, that like it shifted Earth's axis or some shit. And I know this is super tangent. I don't remember if that was pseudoscience or something, but uh, apparently it was like such a major earthquake that it moved their coastline by eight inches or something. Moving... Like there are always earthquakes that move a couple inches every so often. Like you can see some evidence around transform faults in particular, which are the ones that slide against each other. So they build tension, snap and move. And like in San Francisco, for instance, and like the outer limits, you will find like walls that were from like the 1800s that are now like a foot or two apart by this point because of just the slipping of the transform faults. It's interesting. But occasionally there are these gigantic earthquakes, usually of nine or higher, that are just so destructive that it does something to the wider sense of it all. And if you do have a, te uh, a tectonic map, you could technically map where earthquakes have been, and you could form a story around where there hasn't been. Because if you look at in South um, the, the Indian Ocean in Southeast Asia, if you look around the crack between... Um, Polynesia and the ocean, there's this huge gap of tectonic plate that hasn't released an earthquake. So there's just pressure still being built up there. And it isn't doomsaying. It's it's legitimate seismological worry, uh, seismologists worry that it's going to one day just slip and there's going to be a huge earthquake. And you can see the same thing in the Pacific Northwest where the oceanic continental uh, convergent boundary that is outside the um, Washington and Oregon coastline, there is another gap there as well. And everything kind of lines up for time periods of like within a hundred years, something could happen. And luckily those governments have taken into account this, but in your own world, you could do this as well and go, well, I could have something here like this regular earthquake and people kind of write about it because they did back in the day. There's always been people writing about earthquakes and kind of work that into your storyline. But similarly, you don't technically need to do tectonic plate work to do that. Yeah, I think to that comment, we just have to, if you don't want to build the whole tectonic plate system, you just have to create it in a believable way. Um, and, you know, create, if you're going to have uh, earthquakes in this area, maybe they're all kind of along a similar line so you can kind of see the idea of a, where a plate boundary might be. Um, and the same thing with like, you look at the Ring of Fire, for example, in the Pacific Ocean, which includes a whole bunch of islands, New Zealand. Um, it's just this area that basically follows borders between plates. There's a whole bunch of um, volcanic uh, areas there, both dormant and active. Um, and, you know, again, you can build that in your own world as well, or put it on your map and say that, you know, there's this 
uh, line or sh uh, ring of volcanic activity, which alludes to these tectonic boundaries. Uh, but again, you don't need to exactly create them if you're going to do that. Obviously, you could, and more power to you. Um, but yeah, I think the, the point is that we just need a reference and a concept for it all. Man, aren't earthquakes fascinating yet terrifying? Ah, uh, tectonic plates. Well, even if you do go to the extra, well, if you do go to the extra length and decide where your tectonics are and how big they are, you do have the premise on where to base tidal, tidal waves, earthquakes, fault lines, etc. So, it, if you really do go for that brass ring, it can be worth the work if you know what you're doing with it. Yeah, and using online resources to learn the whole thing, and I, I guess I would just caution against listening to just one person, including myself. Go and go and read these different sources online, whether it be journals or just Wikipedia. Wikipedia actually has some pretty decent stuff on uh, tectonics. Um, it's it's worth looking into if you're going to go the extra mile and make this and not just follow a guide from a video is my point. Um, because I find I find too many people obsess over the words of pundits in the, and don't, I don't know, I, I feel like they, they obsess and think that they must do it and then they do it partially because that's how they were told to do it and feel free to make stuff up because when you're world building if it's cool you can probably make it work if it's cool yeah. no one will care so wait don't get a climatology degree um <laughs> <laughs> but how else will i know about the rain shadow effect rain shadow is very important you know it is it is so i guess this will bring us on to um our next topic the rain shadow effect uh <laughs> 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 technically um so it, it is it's uh dino's top 10 truths about map making and i just want to spoiler alert there's only one thing and it's actually that wind movement is the most important thing for creating actual biomes for creating rivers for creating civilization so if you're going to obsess over something obsess over wind but no really um wind carries moisture which fuels everything the entire cycle of life um mountains can trap wind but it also can let it razor wind down the other side so it's it's a complicated effect and i highly recommend people look into if not the rain shadow effect which is a little simpler but the overall how wind movement works how jet streams work how it affects tidal currents and how it affects moisture levels um, on the continents and how you can heat up a place in the close to the South Pole, like New Zealand with just wind and how you can have more than one direction of wind flowing at a single location at a time, because people will tell you, Oh, the side closest to the coast, that's the side. That's the wet side. That's not, that's not, that's general. That's not the rule. The rule is just which side has heavier wind. Look at the Alps, for instance, where the wet side is the side farther from the coast and not the side that's closer to, like, say, Italy. And there's a lot of reasons for how that works and why that is the way it is. Where where, where does the wind come from, Tyler? It comes from, it, it comes from the sky. Um, Zeus blows it down. He just goes... And all the science around it is just made up to make us argue on the internet. It's all coming together. <laughs> um I'd complain about this longer, but we're already over an hour. So I think I'll save this for another time. Um, 
Do you think it would be worthwhile to briefly define wind shadow in layman's terms? Sure, go for it. All right. So for a brief description of wind shadow, because I know we've, I know we've either I mentioned it a few times. I know Tyler did. Tyler did once, but uh, wind shadow is the effect of a mountain against a prevailing wind. Typically, a on the opposite side where the prevailing wind is hitting. Ugh, let me try. Let me try that again. I'm trying to talk too fast. It's my Rhode Island curse. I know we've mentioned uh, wind shadow quite a bit, or at least I have, and I know Tyler has. But uh, wind shadow typically occurs when a prevailing wind strikes against a mountain, either bringing in moisture or failing to do so as it crosses over a mountain. This can cause uh, effects like the Gobi Desert and the Himalayas, or it's going to cause effects like the Gobi Desert does against the Himalayas, where despite it being in a relatively temperate area, is extremely dry because the moisture simply can't enter the area. If there's anything you want to add, go for it, man. And we get kind of like the inverse effect on the side of a mountain if the moisture is pulling up against one side of it, correct? You, like you would get a denser forest or something? Yes, look at something like the Amazon where the all that moisture goes inland and gets trapped in the mountains and just recedes back down across this huge expanse of lowlands. And it just makes the cloud forest into the Amazon the dense jungle rainforest where it's created through this moisture coming down because it's so humid. I think if you look at a map of South America, the entire West coast is just the Andes mountains completely blocking any kind of crosswind. Mm -hmm. And if you see how wind currents move down and around, they move down the coast, not into the coast. So it kind of circulates back up and there's El Nino and how that changes the climate, even for myself up in new England. Um, it, it's so involved in every piece of where wind goes helps to later define what happens on the continent and how it breaks apart. Um, there's a, this thing called the jet stream where at the lateral on both sides of the hemispheres um, of the northern and southern hemispheres, you have this wind that goes around in a circle uh, around the whole world. And you can see where this wind cuts through even in in maps like um, density of snowfall. You can see it in glacial maps where literally the glaciers from the last ice age follow. They end at this warm jet stream wind where it literally cuts down and it would stop and it would stop the approach. So having those things and mapping out and knowing where they are can also help you inform where your land is because you go into, you know, the great lakes area. Why is it the way it is? Well, that's because there's the jet stream and it's trapped between two mountains and that's where all the rain comes down. I think that just dreams a very, very complex topic because it can be good reason for why warm air comes into cold regions and vice versa. You know, you and I see the winds turn into snows very rapidly, not to mention a week ago. Yeah, I gotta love those April snow showers. Yeah, just like last year. I don't know what the weather's like because I haven't been outside in a long time. Eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> I think it snowed outside kind of wrap this up with any last thoughts you guys have on mapping and shaping your world's geography and geology? I guess for myself, um, when working on when working on a map for whatever you're doing, I think the most important thing, as we discussed at the beginning of this discussion, I don't like that. Retry. I think one of the most important things to consider when working on your map or just playing it, planning it out is to really just nail down what is it for. Uh, if you are making a map for your players for a tabletop campaign, if you are making it for 
a novel or story of some kind if you're making it for some other reason. Um, if you're trying to make it from your setting and made by a character from there, all of these decisions are going to impact what is important to the map, what needs to be showcased, uh, and what information needs to be communicated. Um, so nailing that down right at the very beginning is going to help inform a lot that comes later. Oh, I'll go. Um, to kind of build off what Adam said, I think it's important to uh, think of a map as something that, as a tool for world building that works for you and will eventually work for your audience, whether that be readers or players and whoever else. Um, I, I have a very pragmatic view towards map making, and I think it's just useful to have that when you want it to work for you. Um, in my case, it kind of worked me for a bit where I created a map that didn't quite amount to my uh, initial intentions, but making uh, taking what I did have, um, not putting too much time into the aesthetics per se, but at least putting enough into the details and perhaps the lack of details, um, it allowed me to further to further consider what I wanted to do with my world and build off from there. In this case, taking advantage of an otherwise disadvantageous uh, scale problem and adding a twist to my world as a result of how can things work because of what I put on my map. And while it can also work vice versa, it's all up to what you're trying to do in your world building. It doesn't hurt to get creative with how things get onto your map, how they're created, or why they're there. Because uh, when you're creating, and when you have enough creativity, uh, you'll find a way. I really love map making to be used uh, to express the passage of time, because it does really feel like an underappreciated thing. I mentioned it much earlier on, but when I said it, I did have a specific example in mind. Most fantasy books do include maps, but uh, those that do will just have the one map at the beginning, or maybe at the end. And inversely, adventures like Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons will have the map, and they'll just give it to the dungeon master, and he can change it as he pleases. The book I had in mind in particular is one uh, titled 40,000 in Gehenna. It details the growth of this colony on an unknown world where people were just kind of thrown. And across that book, you see it bring up a number of maps, ones that show what they've discovered and how they've changed or what they've lost or what they found. I'll try that again. Hold on a second. Uh, but the book in particular, which was titled 40,000 in Gehenna, details the growth of a colony where a bunch of people were deposited on unknown worlds. And across that book, you see them draw up a number of maps for you. Ones that have shown what they've discovered, how they've changed as a colony, where they've grown to, or where they've receded from. And much as Immaculate, Adam, and myself have said, maps are tools. And ultimately, it's up to you to decide what you do with them. I guess to round us out, I would just say that maps are there to help us. They're there to help share information, to give data. And so long as they do that, it's okay. It's okay that it doesn't look perfect, that it's not just right, that it it can be used for a little while and be changed later. It's okay. You don't have to obsess over every detail. You don't need a thousand different maps to tell the same story. You can very well do that. And if that's the world building you want to do, that's perfect. Because then you can have this whole other world and whole other story of just what data the map will tell. And I just want to express that you don't have to feel like you're stuck and leashed to this idea that if it's not 100% perfect and realistic, no one will care and, and 
people will think that it's bad or, or what what have you, what anxiety is taking over. Just breathe, sketch something out. And if you don't like it, sketch something else and just keep on working until you have something that you can work with. And then down the line, change it. It's okay. Um, I'll leave you with the words of the professor himself, J.R. Tolkien. I wisely started with a map. Thank you. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media, or feel free to come chat with us on the Worldbuilding Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep worldbuilding. <laughs>